our family to yours. Merry Christmas. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, you know, typically around this time of year, we focus on the birth narrative. And so it may seem out of place to cover the death of Christ. And yet, of course, we know that He was born to die. And he came into this world to save sinners, and the means by which God had ordained that sinners would be saved was the blood of Christ shed on the cross. We are concluding our Christmas in the Mountains series. We've been to Mount Sinai, heard our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, seen Him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now we come to Mount Calvary. We pick up the reading in Luke 23, in verse 26. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the true and living God. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. <clears throat> there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under this same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was, about, it was now about the ninth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until, excuse me, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds 
that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breast and all their acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let us pray. Indeed, Father, the, the distance is great for us, not just geographically, but chronologically. We stand at a distance, and yet, Father, bring the cross close to us this morning so that we can see clearly our Lord crucified in our place for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There, they crucified Him. That's how Luke records it here in chapter 23 and verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right, one on His left. There. Luke tells us it is called the, the skull, the place of the skull. If you're working with the King James, yours may say Calvary. That's from the Latin. The other Gospels call it Golgotha. There it is called the skull, Golgotha. And there are a few reasons that have been postulated as to why it's called the skull, the place of the skull. One is that, uh, that, according to tradition, David came back to this place and buried the skull of Goliath here after he had defeated him in that well-known uh, Bible narrative. Others say this is the, the place where Adam's skull was buried all the way back to the beginning, which would be very interesting because Adam, our head, his head is buried there, and Christ, our head for our salvation is crucified there. does have a neat little double meaning there, if that's the case. Others say, well, it, it just looks like a skull. And, and so that's why it's called the place of the skull. Whatever the reason, it is there that they crucified him, along with two other criminals, one on his left, one on his right. This is, of course, to fulfill prophecy. Isaiah says that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And indeed, that is what is happening with our Lord as He dies between two transgressors. The one recognizing that they're there justly for their crimes. It's in full view of everyone. People are coming by, whether it's the uh, religious leaders or the Roman soldiers or the people. It's in full view. And that's to fulfill Scripture as well in the 22nd Psalm. David writes, all who see me mock me and hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 17 of the, the same psalm, people stare and gloat over me. Verse 7, verse 17 of the 22nd psalm. And so here's Jesus, he's crucified in full view of everybody. This is the whole world can see him as he hangs there on the cross for those six hours, experiencing the most shameful and despicable mode of death ever devised by the sinful mind of humanity. That is what our Lord is enduring. But it is also interesting to take a step out of history 
and out of time itself and to think about Mount Calvary in eternity. We know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit works together in creation. The Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, creating the whole world. And in the theater of our mind, perhaps we can imagine a moment, if we can talk about a moment, in time for the Godhead, when as the world is being shaped and formed, that hill outside of Jerusalem, when that hill, that mountain is formed, the Son calls the Father over, the Spirit comes, and the Trinity, they know what's going to happen there in time. And I wonder if they examine the place where God's justice and yet God's love will meet in history, perhaps. But it's there, Mount Calvary, that they crucified Him. Who are these people? And you walk through the, the historical account, and we know that there were primarily three parties in view here. There was the Jewish people, there were the Romans, and there was Pilate. The Jewish people, Jesus had been a thorn in their side ever since He came onto the scene. And they had hated Him all along the way. They had tried to figure out ways in which they could kill Him time and again, but it wasn't His time. And so, out of their hatred, they had to get rid of Jesus. They themselves had no power to execute a person, so they devise a plan. Scheme a scheme whereby Jesus will be executed by the Romans. But before the Romans get to him, first he's got to appear before Pilate. And Pilate, he was a political leader, and he was a, a politician's politician. Because on the one hand, he wanted to keep the people happy, but on the other hand, he knew this guy's done nothing. Jesus has, has not committed anything worthy of death. And so he tries to figure out ways in which to get Jesus off the hook to no avail. Because while Pilate is dancing to his own desires of wanting to please people and do the right thing, in back of all that is the overriding purpose of God, seeing to it that, yes, Jesus will end up on the cross. And so Pilate washes his hands and delivers Jesus over to be crucified, and it is the Romans, the Roman soldiers, who are the ones who actually pound the nails into the sacred flesh of Christ. Roman soldiers who had been hardened by hundreds of crucifixions. I mean, that's what you did on a day ending. And why, if you were a Roman soldier, you crucified people, especially the Jewish people. You see, they, the Roman soldiers, are the ones who tore into, ripped into the sacred flesh of Christ with the flagellum when they scourged Him. They were the ones who forced that crown of thorns onto His brow. They were the ones who mocked Him every step of the way to Calvary. They were the ones who pounded in the nails into His hands and His feet. And they were the ones who ultimately, to make sure He was dead, drove the spear up into the side of Christ, water and blood flowing from that wound. These are the ones who, in history, were responsible for the death of our Lord. There, they crucified Him. 2,000 years later, we can sit back and express what an awful thing they did. 
But we have to realize that while in history it was the Jewish people, the Romans and Pilate who were responsible for this, again, if we are honest in our own heart of hearts, it was we who crucified Jesus. We are responsible for our Lord's death. Why? Because we love darkness. We, we love our sin. And, and in the Gospel of John, it's, it's identified that people love darkness because their deeds are darkness. And so, yes, that's, that's part of it. We, we don't want our works exposed. We flee from the light. Because we love darkness, Jesus was crucified. It's because of our disobedience as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, we too were once foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were disobedient. And because of the folly of our disobedience, Jesus went to the cross. Disobedience, of course, means that we know the commands, we know what the Lord requires, and yet we don't do that. Or we know that the Lord says, don't do this, and yet we do it anyway, and we break the commands. It's by our disobedience that Jesus goes to the cross. And really, what are we talking about? We're talking about our sin. It is because of our sins that Jesus goes to the cross. Because of our sins, our trespasses, our iniquities, uh, not just the, the, the violations, but right down to the twisted stuff inside of us. That's what iniquity is. Where we twist and we distort these, the good gifts that God gave us and press them into use that they were not intended to be used for. Yes, it was our darkness, our disobedience, our sin that drove Jesus to the cross. You see, we did the deed that shook the earth and darkened the skies. It's as if we took the flagellum from the hands of the Roman soldiers and scourged our Lord. As if we took that crown of thorns ourselves and forced it onto the brow of our Lord. It's as if we mocked Him every step of the way to Calvary. It's as if we took the nails and the hammer from those Roman soldiers and pounded the nails in ourselves. It's as if we ourselves thrust the spear into the side. Someone may say, not me. No, I, I would never. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, says John. It was us. It is us. It's because of our sin that Jesus was sentenced to death, even from birth and even before birth. This was in the eternal purpose of God, that He would save sinners through the cross. From our first sin to our last. That is what drove Christ to the cross. But it is also out of His infinite love that He stays there on the cross. We sing the song, He could have called 10,000 angels. And He could have at any moment. But He died alone for you and me. And this is starting to bleed into the purpose of the cross. No pun intended, by the way. We've seen the place. We've seen the people. Well, what about the purpose? There they crucified Him. That's why He goes to, the, to Mount Calvary, is to be crucified. But for what purpose? And, and what purpose did it serve in the grand scheme of things? Well, we've already talked about our need, our deepest need. We, we have sin. 
It is our sin that we need dealt with. And the cross is the divine solution to our biggest problem, our sin problem. We had earlier read for us from Romans chapter 3. And it's in Romans 3 that several biblical themes come together. We notice here in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the problem. However, Paul goes on here in verse 24 to talk about they are justified by His grace as a gift. Justification. There's a big $5 Bible word. And justification, what that means is, on the one hand, you probably heard it explained, it is just as if I'd never sinned. We've been declared righteous because, first of all, our sin has been dealt with in Christ. But we have to go further, and on the other hand, we also need it's just as if I'd kept the law perfectly. You see, that's why Christ lives 33 years before He dies, is to keep the law perfectly. What we could never do, Jesus did for us through His active obedience to God, through His life. And that is why His righteousness is credited to us. You need both of those elements. The sin problem dealt with just as if I'd never sinned, but also the righteousness of Christ being credited to you. And, by the way, your sins counted to Him. That, that great exchange that takes place where his, my sins become His and His righteousness becomes mine. Justification. We needed that. Paul goes on here. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus... Redemption means to buy back at a price. And indeed, we have been purchased at a price, and the price tag was the blood of Jesus. This is really going to pop. We're going to look at one more text here in, in just a moment. But redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it is Christ on the cross and by His blood that we are purchased. In Acts chapter 20, we read how He purchased His church with His blood. And indeed, it is the blood that buys us back from sin and death and hell and the grave and all of it. We've been bought back. We were in bondage, slavery to sin and disobedience. No more. We've been bought from that slavery. And now we become slaves of righteousness, as Paul explains later on in Romans chapter 6. The price has been paid, and the price is God the Son on the cross shedding His blood. You look at verse 25, and Paul goes on, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood. Another $5 Bible word, propitiation. We're not often, it's not often that we drop that in normal conversation, right? But propitiation has, has several elements. There is the, the, the one who's been offended, that would be God. There's the one who has done the offense, that's us and our sins. And then there's the means by which the wrath of God for sin has been satisfied. That's in Christ Jesus and by His blood. And now we've been made friends again. That's reconciliation uh, as well. But uh, Christ has satisfied the wrath of God by His blood. The blood of Jesus shed in order to turn away the wrath of God. All of the wrath of God poured out into Christ, and He takes it on our behalf. 
the penalty and the punishment due us for our sins, Jesus satisfies it on the cross. Justification, redemption, propitiation. One more. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we see here the connection between redemption and the blood, but also forgiveness. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. That's the blood of Jesus. And Paul, whenever he talks about the blood, he's pointing us to the cross. He's pointing us to Mount Calvary. And so we see here the redemption price, the price tag to buy us back from a world of sin is the blood of Christ. But then he goes further and he says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And by the way, these are very specific. It is your sin and your sin and my sin. All of our sins have been forgiven. How? By the blood of Christ and by the redemption obtained through His blood. Forgiven. And again, the picture is that of bondage. We were in bondage to our sin, and now we have been loosed by it. It is the the picture of uh, something being sent away. And indeed, our sins have been taken away by Christ through His blood. As Scripture says, we have been separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west. And all this, again, by the blood of Christ. And don't miss this. We saw it earlier in Romans 3, how we are justified by His grace as a gift. Notice verse 7, how it ends. This is all according to the riches of His grace. It's the grace of God. That, uh, and only by the grace of God that we have justification and redemption and propitiation and forgiveness and, and so many more things. Uh, we, all this can be brought under the umbrella, the banner of salvation. We could talk about uh, sanctification, so many other things. But all of this, all the glorious benefits and blessings that are ours because of Christ. And again, all of this was according to the eternal purpose of God. It wasn't that uh, God was surprised or, or taken aback, like, man, I, I didn't see this sin problem coming along. This is why in, in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 13, one way of translating the phrase is that Christ was uh, slain. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That in the mind of God, it was a done deal in time, before time even existed. That the Father would send the Son into the world so that the Son could accomplish redemption, forgiveness, salvation for the people of God. You see, just as... It could be that the Father, Son, and Spirit look upon Mount Calvary. The reason that they would is because already in the mind of the triune God, they were, this, was, this was the purpose. This is why the Son would be sent and crucified for us and in our place. We come back to Luke 23. There they crucified Him. That's Jesus. And we, we, we end where we began because we talked about it at the beginning of this lesson, how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit work together in creation. 
Well, God the Son, He's, He's the Creator. It is through the Son that all things come into creation. And so we think about how the Creator enters into His own creation, thereby bringing meaning to all of time and space, by the way. Uh, all the actions that He performed are meaningful, which means that all of our actions are meaningful in time as well. And then the Creator allows Himself to be mocked and beaten and scourged and spit upon and His beard pulled out. and He allows Himself to be nailed to the cross. He allows Himself, and indeed He dies on the cross. No other religious system has this. Where the Creator comes near and dies in the place of the creature. For the creature's salvation. But this is what our God has done. Indeed, Colossians chapter 2. In chapter 1, we read about how it is through the Son that the Father has created all things. And so, uh, the Son is the Creator. And we come to chapter 2 of Colossians. And verse 9 We read that in Him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is a plain statement of the full deity of the Son, of Christ. That He is 100% fully God. This, again, they crucified Him. It's the Son. God the Son. The second person of the Godhead. The one who had been worshipped by the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Or how about this? In Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. John tells us in John chapter 12, the angels were saying that about Jesus, about the Christ before He even took on flesh. He's the one that angels praise. He's the one that the prophets witnessed to and said, He's coming, He's coming. This one who would crush the head of Satan, this one... who would be abandoned by God, forsaken by God, so that we might be saved. The one who would be numbered with the transgressors. The one who would uh, bring deliverance and forgiveness of sins. The prophets witnessed to Him. And He is the one who is praised and worshipped by people. His own people even. Us. He is the proper object of our worship, and again, they crucified Him. We know the rest of the story, that although He dies and He is buried, He does not stay dead. Three days later, He is raised from the dead, thereby He is vindicated and declared to be the Son of God with power. And as we think about this, He Himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Him will never die, but shall have life, and that is eternal life. And of course, He concludes that saying with, do you believe this? That's the question that confronts everybody down through the ages. It comes ringing down the halls of time, do you believe this? I think I've shared this story before. It's, it's an old story. 
It may be apocryphal, but uh, maybe there's a, a bit of truth to it as well. When the Battle of Waterloo was being waged, the people of England were all waiting to hear how the battle went. And they had set up a, a, a communication system across the channel, and, and wouldn't you know it, uh, about the time that they were expecting a response, here comes the fog. That sort of thing happens in England. But there was just enough time. They, they caught the message as it was being transmitted. And it said, Wellington defeated. Oh, their great champion. Defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. And they began to question and, and wonder what that would mean for their future. There was mourning that was involved. But then the fog lifted. And the rest of the message came through. Wellington defeated Napoleon. Jesus is taken off the cross. He is wrapped, prepared for burial, put into the tomb. The stone, of course, rolled into place. It is secured because the people want to ensure that he stays dead. And then the sun sets on that day. And the message, it seems, is Jesus defeated. And surely the devil and all the hordes of hell rejoiced. They had done it. They had killed the Son of God. And for three days, that's what it seemed. What would this mean for the future of humanity? There's mourning involved. The disciples are behind locked doors, scared for their own lives. But then on the third day, the fog, as it were, was lifted. The mist is gone, and, and now we see the stone not just rolled away, but off its, off its uh, track there. It's been torn away, as it were. And the tomb is found open and empty, and the grave clothes are lying there. And people begin to have these appearances of Jesus back from the dead. And now the full message comes through. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus defeated sin. And all of heaven rejoices, and all the people of God across time, space, and history rejoice as well. Because the King of kings is risen from the dead, and He reigns supreme forever and ever. Let's commit this to prayer. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, is, and is to come. We rejoice and give you praise and thanks for what you have done in Christ Jesus on Mount Calvary. We acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge that we are unrighteous. And yet it is by the righteous one by the sinless one. That you now treat us sinners as though we are sinless and that we are righteous. We can only give you thanks for your glorious grace. 
Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Now and forever and to the day of eternity, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.